Chapter Twelve of Somehow Good. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Helen Taylor, Oxford, UK. Chapter Twelve: What Fenwick and Sally's mother had been saying in the back drawing room. Opus Nine Nine Nine. Back in that old garden again, and how Jerry could not swim. The old Tartini Sonata. As soon as ever Mr. Bradshaw touched his violin, and before ever he began to play his Hungarian dance on all four strings at once, Mrs. Nightingale and Mr. Fenwick went away into the back drawing-room, not to be too near the music, because there was a fire in both rooms. In the interval of time that had passed since Christmas, Sally had contrived to dismiss from her mind Colonel Lund's previsions about her mother and Mr. Fenwick, or they had given warning and gone of their own accord, for by now she had again fallen into the frame of mind which classified her mother and Fenwick as semi-elderly people, and, so to speak, out of it all. So her mind assented readily to distance from the music as a sufficient reason for a succession to the back room. Non-combatants are just as well off the field of battle. But a closer observer than Sally at this moment would have noticed that chat in an undertone had already set in in the back drawing-room even before the hungarians had stopped dancing also that the applause that came therefrom when they did stop had a certain perfunctory air as of plaudits something else makes room for and comes back again after not that she would have seen anything in it if she had because whatever her mother said or did was in sally's eyes right and normal abnormal and bad things were conceived and executed outside the family, nor, in spite of the sotto voce, was there anything Sally could not have participated in, whatever exception she might have taken to something of a patronising tone, inexcusable towards our own generation, even in the most semi-elderly people on record. Her mother, at Sally's latest observation-point, had taken the large armchair quite the other side of the rug to be as far off the music as possible. Mr. Fenwick, in reply to a flying remark of her own, she being, at the moment, a music-book-seeker, wouldn't bring the other large armchair in front of the fire and be comfortable, thank you. He liked this just as well. Sally had then commented on Mr. Fenwick's unnatural love of uncomfortable chairs, when he wasn't walking about the room. She fancied, as she passed on, that she heard her mother address him as Fenwick, without the mister. So she did. "'You are a restless man, Fenwick. I wonder, were you so before the accident? Oh, dear, there I am on that topic again.' But he only laughed. "'It doesn't hurt me,' he said. "'That reminds me that I wanted to remind you of something you said you would tell me. You know, the evening the kitten went to the music-party. Something you would tell me sometime?' "'I know. I'll tell you when they've got to their music, if there isn't too much row. Don't let's talk while this new young man's playing. It seems unkind.' It won't matter when they're all at it together. But in spite of good resolutions, silence was not properly observed, and the perfunctory pause came awkwardly on the top of a lapse. Fenwick then said, as one who avails himself of an opportunity, No need to wait for the music. They can't hear a word we say in there. We can't hear a word they say. Because they're making such a racket. Mrs. Nightingale paused with a listening eye, trying to disprove their inaudibility. The examination confirmed Fenwick. "'I like it,' she continued. "'A lot of young voices. It's much better when you don't make out what they say. When you can't hear a word, you fancy some sense in it.' 
and then went on listening, and Fenwick waited too. He couldn't well fidget her to keep her promise. She would do it herself in time. It might be she preferred talking under cover of the music. She certainly remained silent till it came. Then she spoke. "'What was it made me say that to you about something I would tell you?' "'Oh, I know. You said perhaps if you knew your past you would not court catechism about it, and I said that, knowing mine, I should not either. Wasn't that it?' She fixed her eyes on him as though to hold him to the truth. Perhaps she wanted his verbal recognition of the possibility that she, too, like others, might have left things in the past she would like to forget on their merits, cast off garments on the road of life. It may have been painful to her to feel his faith in herself an obstacle to what she wished at least to hint to him, even if she could not tell him outright. She did not want too much divine worship at her shrine. A ready recognition of her position of mortal frailty would be so much more sympathetic, really. A feeling perhaps traceably akin to what many of us have felt, that if our father the devil, old Nicky Ben, would only tuck a thought and mend as he eblins might, he would be the very king of father confessors. If details had to be gone into, we should be sure of his sympathy. Yes, that was it, and I suppose I looked incredulous. Thus, Fenwick. You looked incredulous. I would sooner you should believe me. Would you hand me down that fire-screen off the chimney-piece? Thank you. She was hardening herself to the task she had before her. He gave her the screen, and, as he resumed his seat, drew it nearer to her. Mozart's Opus 999 had just started, and it was a little doubtful if voices could be heard unless, in Sally's phrase, they were close too. I should believe you. Does what you are going to tell me relate to... Go on. To your husband? Yes. The task had suddenly become easier. She breathed more freely about what was to come. I wish you to know that he may still be living. I have heard nothing to the contrary, but I ought to speak of him as the man who was my husband. He is no longer that... Fenwick interposed on her hesitation. "'You've divorced him?' But she shook her head, shook a long negative, and Fenwick looked up quickly and uttered a little sharp, "'Ah!' as though something had struck him. The slow head-shake said as plain as words could have said it, "'I wish I could say yes.' So expressive was it that Fenwick did not even speculate on the third alternative, a separation without a divorce. He saw at once he could make it easier for her if he spoke out plain, treating the bygone as a thing that could be spoken of plainly. "'He divorced you?' She was very white, but kept her eyes steadily fixed on him over the fire-screen, and her voice remained perfectly firm and collected. The music went on intricately all the while. She spoke next. "'To all intents and purposes, there was a technical obstacle to a legal divorce, but he tried for one. We parted sorely against my will, for I loved him, and now it is over nineteen years since I saw him last, or heard of him or from him. But he was absolutely blameless, unless indeed it is to be counted blame to him that he could not bear what no other man could have borne. I cannot possibly give you all details but I wish you to hear this that I have to tell you from myself. It is painful for me to tell, 
but it would be far worse that you should hear it from any one else. I feel sure it is safe to tell you that you will not talk of it to others, least of all to that little chick of mine. You may trust me, indeed you may, without reserve. I see you wish to tell me no more, so I will not ask it. And blame me as little as possible? I cannot blame you. Before you say that, listen to as much as I can tell you of the story. I was a young girl when I went out alone to be married to him in India. We had parted in England eight months before, and he had remained unchanged. His letters all told the same tale. I quarrelled with my mother, as I now see most unreasonably, merely because she wished to marry again. Perhaps she was a little to blame not to be more patient with a headstrong, ill-regulated girl. I was both. It ended in my writing out to him in India that I should come out and marry him at once. My mother made no opposition. She remained silent for a little, and her eyes fell. Then she spoke with more effort, rather as one who answers her own thoughts. No, I need say nothing of the time between. It was no excuse for the wrong I did him. I can tell you what that was. It did not seem easy, though, when it came to actual words. Fenwick spoke into the pause. Why tell me now? Tell me another time. I prefer now. It was this way. I kept something back from him till after we were married, something I should have told him before. Had I done so, I believe to this moment we should never have parted. But my concealment threw doubt on all else I said. I am telling more than I meant to tell. She hesitated again, and then went on. That was my wrong to him. The concealment. But, of course, it was not the ground of the divorce proceedings. Fenwick stopped her again. Why tell me any more? You are being led on, are leading yourself on, to say more than you wish. Well, I will leave it there. Only, Fenwick, understand this. My husband was young and generous and noble-hearted. Had I trusted him, I believe all might have gone well, even though he... She hesitated again, and then cancelled something unsaid. The concealment was my fault, the mistrust. That was all. Nothing else was my fault. As she says the words in praise of her husband, she finds it a pleasure to let her eyes rest on the grave, handsome, puzzled face that, after all, really is his. She catches herself wondering, so oddly do the undercurrents of mind course about, where he got that sharp white scar across his nose. It was not there in the old days. She looks at him until he, too, looks up, and their eyes meet. Well, then, she says, I will tell you no more. Blame me as little as possible. And to this repetition of her previous words he says again, I cannot blame you, very emphatically. But Mrs. Nightingale felt perplexed at his evident sincerity, would rather he should have indulged in truisms, we are not all of us perfect, and so forth. When she spoke again, some bars of the music later, she took for granted that his mind, like hers, was still dwelling on his last words. She felt half sorry she had, so to speak, switched off the current of the conversation. "'If you will think over what I have told you, Fenwick,' You will see that you cannot help doing so. How can that be? 
Surely. My husband sought to divorce me, and was himself absolutely blameless. How can you do otherwise than blame me? Partly, only partly, because I see you are keeping back something, something that would exonerate you. I cannot believe you were to blame. Listen, Fenwick, as I said, I cannot tell you the whole, and the Major, who is the only man alive who knows all the story, will, I know, refuse to tell you anything, even if you ask him, and that I wish you not to do. I should not dream of asking him. Well, he would refuse, I know it. But I want you to know all I can tell you. I do not want any groundless excuses made for me. I will not accept any absolution from any one on a false pretense. You see what I mean? I see perfectly. I am not sure, though, that you see my meaning. But never mind that. Is there anything farther that you would really like me to know? She waited a little and then answered, keeping her eyes always fixed on Fenwick. Yes, there is. But at this moment the first movement of Opus 999 came to a perfect and well-thought-out conclusion, bearing in mind everything that has been said on six pages of ideas faultlessly interchanged by four instruments, and making due allowance for all exceptions each had courteously taken to the other. But Opus 999 was going on to the second movement directly, and only tolerated a pause for a few string tightenings and trial squeaks to get in tune, and the removal of a deceased fly from a piano candle. The remark from the back room that we could hear beautifully in here seemed to fall flat, the second violin merely replying, All right, passionlessly. The instruments then asked each other if they were ready, and answered yes. Then someone counted four suggestively for a start, and life went on again. Mrs. Nightingale and Fenwick sat well on into the music before either spoke. He, resolved not to seem to seek or urge any information at all, or was to come spontaneously from her. She, feeling the difficulty of telling what she had to tell, and always oppressed with the recollection of what it had cost her to make her revelation to this self-same man nineteen years ago. She wished he would give the conversation some lift, as he had done before, when he asked if what she had to tell referred to her husband. But although he would gladly have repeated his assistance, he could see his way to nothing this time that seemed altogether free from risk. How if he were to blunder into ascribing to her something more culpable than her actual share in the past? She half-guessed this, then, seeing that speech must come from herself in the end, took heart and faced the position resolutely. She always did. You know this, Fenwick, do you not, that when there is a divorce, the husband takes the children from their mother, always when she is in the wrong, too often when she is blameless. I have told you I was the one to blame, and I tell you now that though my husband's application for a divorce failed, from a technical point of law, all things came about just as though he had succeeded. Don't analyse it now, take it all for granted. You understand? I understand. Suppose it so. And then? And then this. That little monkey of mine, that little unconscious fiddling thing in there, and as Mrs. Nightingale speaks, the sound of a caress mixes with the laugh in her voice, but the pain comes back as she goes on. My Salikin has been mine, all her life, 
my poor husband never saw her in her childhood as she says the word husband she has again a vivid eclat of the consciousness that it is he himself sitting there beside her and the odd thought that mixes itself into this strange to say is the pity of it to think how little he has had of sally in all these years he for his part can for the moment make nothing of this part of the story he can give his head the lion mane shake she knows him by so well but it brings him no light he is reduced to mere slow repetition of her data his hand before his eyes to keep his brain that has to think clear of distractions from without your husband never saw her she has been yours all her life had she been your husband's child he would have exercised his so-called rights his legal rights and taken her away are those the facts so far yes go on no stop i will tell you at the beginning of this year i should have been married exactly twenty years sally is nineteen you remember her birthday nineteen in august now let me think just at this moment the second movement of opus nine 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 came to an end and gave an added plausibility to the blank he needed to ponder in the viola in the next room looked round across her chair back and said i say mother to a repetition of which mrs nightingale replied what did her daughter say what she said was that her mother and mr fenwick were exactly like canaries they talked as hard as they could all through the music and when it stopped they shut up wasn't that true to which her mother answered affirmatively adding you'll have to put a cloth over us chick and squash us out fenwick was absorbed in thought and did not notice this interlude he did not speak until the music began again then he said abruptly i see the story now sally's father was not was not my husband there is not a trace of cowardice or hesitation in her filling out the sentence there is pain but that again dies away in her voice as she goes on to speak of her daughter i do not connect him with her now she is a thing of itself a, a thing of herself she is she is sally well you see what she is i see she is a very dear little person then he seems to want to say something and to pause on the edge of it then in answer to a yes of encouragement from her continues i was going to say she must be very like him like her father very like she asks or very unlike which did you mean i mean very like as to looks because she is so unlike you she is like enough to him as far as looks go it's her only fault poor chick and she can't help it besides i mind it less now that i have more than half forgiven him for her sake the tone of her voice mixes a sob and a laugh though she utters neither and is quite collected but she is quite unlike him in character sally is not an angel oh dear no the laugh predominates but but what she is not a devil and as she said this the pain was all back again in the dropped half-whisper in which she said it and in that moment fenwick made his guess of the whole story which maybe went nearer than we shall do with the information we have to go upon in this narrative as we tell it now that story is known only to its chief actor and to her old friend 
who is now dining at the Herkaru Club. The third movement of Opus 999 was not a very long one, and coming to an end at this point seemed to supply a reason for silence that was not unwelcome in the back drawing-room. The end of a trying conversation had been attained. Both speakers could now affect attention to what was going on in the front. This had taken the form of a discussion between Mr. Julius Bradshaw and Miss Letitia Wilson, who was anxious to transfer her position of first violin to that young gentleman. We regret to have to report that Miss Sally's agreement with her friend about the desirability had been sotto voce in these terms. "'Yes, Tishy, dear, do make the shop-boy play the last movement.' And Miss Wilson had then suggested it, saying there was a bit she knew she couldn't play. "'And you expect me to?' said the owner of the Strad, when I haven't so much as looked at it for three years past. To which Miss Sally appended a marginal note. "'Stuff and nonsense! Don't be affected, Mr. Bradshaw!' However, after compliments, more protestations from its owner, the Strad was brought into Hotchpot, and Letitia abdicated. "'Won't you come and sit in here, to be away from the music?' said the back drawing-room, but Letitia wanted to see Mr. Bradshaw's fingering of that passage. We are more interested in the back drawing-room. Like many other athletic men, and we have seen how strongly this character was maintained in Fenwick, he hated armchairs. Even in the uncomfortable ones, by which we mean the ones we dislike, his restless strength would not remain quiet for any length of time. At intervals he would get up and walk about the room, exasperating the sedate, and then make good-humoured concession to their weakness. Mrs. Nightingale could remember all this in Jerry the boy, twenty years ago. If it had not been for that music, probably he would have walked about the room over that stiff problem in dates he had just grappled with. As it was, he remained in his chair to solve it, that is, if he did solve it. Possibly, the moment he saw something important turned on the date of Sally's birth, he jumped across the solution to the conclusion it was to lead to. Given the conclusion, the calculation had no interest for him. But the story his mind constructed to fit that conclusion stunned him. It knitted his brows and clenched his teeth for him. It made the hand that had been hanging loose over the uncomfortable chair-back close savagely on something. A throat, perhaps, that his imagination supplied. How like he looked, thought his companion, to himself on one occasion twenty years ago. But his anger now was on her behalf alone. It was not so in that dreadful time she hoped he might never recollect. If only his memory of all the past might remain as now, a book with a locked clasp and a lost key. She watched him as he sat there, and saw a calmer mood come back upon him. Each wanted a raison d'etre for a silent pause, and neither was sorry for the desire each might ascribe to the other of hearing the last movement of the music undisturbed. Opus 999 was prospering, there was no doubt of it. Letitia Wilson was a very fair example of a creditable career at the R.A.M., but she was not quite equal to this unfortunate victim of a too nervous system, who could play like an angel for half an hour, mind you, not more. This was his half-hour, and it was quite reasonable for Fenwick to take for granted that his hostess would like to pay attention to it, or vice versa. So both sat silent. 
But as she sat listening to Opus 999 and watching wonderingly the strange victim of oblivion, of whom she knew, scarcely acknowledging it always, though, that she had once for a short time called him husband, her mind went back to an old time when he and she were young, before the tragic memory that she sometimes thought might have been lived down had come into her life and his. And a scene rose up before her out of that old time, a scene of young men, almost boys, and girls who but the other day were in the nursery, playing lawn tennis in a happy garden, with never a thought for anything in this wide world but themselves and each other, and the scoring, and how jolly it would be in the houseboat at Henley to-morrow. And then this garden scene a little later in the moonrise, and herself and one of the players, who was Jerry, this very man, left by the other two to themselves, on a garden seat his arm hung over, just as it did now on that chair-back. How exactly he sat then as he sat now, his other hand in charge of the foot that had crossed on his knee just as now, to keep it from a slip along his lawn-tennis flannels. How well she could remember the tennis shoe, with its ribbed rubber sole, in place of that highly polished calf thing. And she could remember every word they said, there in the warm moonlight. What a silly boy you are! I don't care. I shall always say exactly the same thing. I can't help it. All silly boys say that sort of thing. Then they change their minds. I never said it to any girl in my life but you, Rosie. I never thought it. I shall never say it again to any one but you. Don't be nonsensical. I'm not. It's true. Wait till you've been six months in India, Jerry. And then the recollection of what followed made it seem infinitely strange to her that Fenwick should remain, as he had remained, immovable. If the hand she could remember so well, for all it had grown so scarred and service-worn and hairy, were to take hers as it did then, as they sat together on the garden-seat, would it shake now, as formerly? If his great strong arm, her memory still felt round her, were to come again now, would she feel in it the tremor of the passion he was shaken by then, and in caresses such as she half reproved him for, but had no heart to resist, the reality of a love then young and strong and full of promise for the days to come, and now what? the perished trunk of an uprooted tree, the shadow of a half-forgotten dream. As he sat silent, only now and then by some slight sign, some new knitting of the brow or closing of the hand, showing the tension of the feeling produced by the version his mind had made of the story half told to him, as he sat thus, under a kind of feint of listening to the music, the world grew stranger and stranger to his companion. She had fancied herself strong enough to tell the story, but had hardly reckoned with his possible likeness to himself. She had thought that she could keep the twenty years that had passed clearly in her mind, could deal with the position from a good, sensible, matter-of-fact standpoint. The past was past, and happily forgotten by him. The present had still its possibilities, if only the past might remain forgotten. Surely she could rely on herself to find the nerve to go through what was, after all, a mere act of duty, knowing, or rather feeling, that Fenwick would ask her to marry him as soon as he dared—it was merely a question of time— 
her duty was plainly to forewarn him, to make sure that he was alive to the antecedents of the woman he was offering himself to. She knew his antecedents, as many as she wished to know. If the twenty years of oblivion concealed irregularity, immorality, well, was she not to blame for it? Was ever a better boy than Jerry, as she knew him, to the day they parted? It was her fault, or misfortune, that had cast him all adrift. As to that troublesome question of a possible wife elsewhere, in the land of his oblivion, she had quite made up her mind about that. Every effort had been made to find such a one, and failed. If she reappeared, it would be her own duty to surrender Finnick, if he wished to go back. If he did not, and his other wife wished to be free, surely in the chicane of the law courts there must be some shuffle that could be for once made useful to a good end. Mrs. Nightingale had reasoned it all out in cold blood, and she was, as we have told you, a strong woman. But had she really taken her own measure? Could she sit there much longer with him beside her, and his words of twenty years ago sounding in her ears, almost the feeling of the kisses she had so dutifully pointed out the lawlessness and allowed the repetition of in that old forgotten time? Forgotten by him, never by her. Was it possible to bear, without crying out, the bewilderment of a mixed existence, such as that his presence and identity forced upon her, wrenching her this way and that, interweaving the woof of then with the weft of now, even as in that labyrinth of musical themes and phrases in the other room they crossed and recrossed one another at the bidding of each instrument as its turn came to tell its tale. Her brain reeled, and her heart ached under the intolerable stress. Could she still hold on? Or would she be, after all, driven to make some excuse, and run for the solitude of her own room to live down the tension as best she might, alone? The music itself came to her assistance. Its triumphant strength, in an indescribable outburst of hope, or joy, or mastery of fate, as it drew near to its final close, spoke to her of the great ocean that lies beyond the crabbed limits of our stinted lives, the boundless sea our rivulets of life steal down to, to be lost in, and while it lasted made it possible for her to be still. She took her eyes from Fenwick, and waited. When she raised them again, in the silence Opus of 999 came to an end in, she saw that he had moved. His face had gone into his hands, and as she looked up, his old action of rubbing them into his loose hair and shaking it had come back and his strong identity with his boyhood, dependent on the chance of the moment, had disappeared. He got up suddenly, and after a turn across the room he was in, walked into the other one, and contributed his share to the babble of felicitation or comment that followed what was clearly thought an achievement in musical rendering. "'Oh, dear, oh, dear,' said Letitia Wilson, "'was ever a poor girl so sat upon? I feel quite flat.' This was not meant to be taken too much au pied de la lettre, it was merely a method of praise of Mr. Bradshaw. But what a jolly shame you had to give it up! This was Sally in undisguised admiration. But in Mr. Julius Bradshaw's eyes, Sally's identity had undergone a change. Her breezy frankness had made hay of a grande passion, and was blowing the hay all over the field. He had come close to, and had a good look, 
but will hardly go away in a huff, although he feels a little silly over his public worship of these past weeks. Just at this moment of the story, however, he is very apologetic towards Miss Wilson, on whom, if she reports correctly, he has sat. He tries no pretences with a view to her reinstatement, even on a par with himself. He knows, and every one knows, they would be seen through immediately. It is no use assuring her she is a capital player of her years. Much better let it alone. "'Are you any the worse, Mr. Bradshaw?' says Dr. Vereker. Obviously, as a medical authority, it is his duty to voice this inquiry, so he voices it. "'No, but that's about as much as I can do with safety. It won't do to spoil my night's rest and be late at the shop.' It was easy to talk about the shop with perfect unreserve after such a performance as that. "'Oh, dear, we are so sorry for you,' thus the two girls. And concurrence comes in various forms from Vereker, Fenwick, and the pianist, whom we haven't mentioned before. He was a cousin of Miss Wilson's, and was one of those unfortunate young men who have no individuality whatever. But pianists have to be human unless you can afford a pianola, you may speak of them as Mr. Watts's-name, or Miss Thingamy, but you must give them tea or coffee or cake or sandwiches, or whatever is brought in on a tray. This young man's name, we believe, was Elsley. Nobody Elsley, Miss Sally in her frivolity had thought fit to christen him. You know how in your own life people come in and go out, and you never know anything about them. Even so, this young man, in this story. I was very sorry for myself, I assure you. It is Bradshaw who speaks, when I had to make up my mind to give it up, but it couldn't be helped. He speaks without reserve, but as of an unbearable subject. In fact, Sally said afterwards to Tishy, it seemed as if he was going to cry. He doesn't cry, though, but goes on. At one time I really thought I should have gone and jumped into the river. Why didn't you? asked Sally. I should have. Yes, silly Sally, says Letitia and then you would have swum like a fish, and the police would have pulled you out, and you would have looked ridiculous. But Sally is off on a visit to her mother in the next room. Tired, Mummy darling? She kisses her, and her mother answers, Yes, love, a little, and kisses her back. Doesn't he play beautifully, mother? says Sally. But her mother says, Yes, absently. Her attention is taken off by something else. What is wrong with Mr. Fenwick? Sally doesn't think anything is. It's only his way. I'm sure there's something wrong, says Mrs. Nightingale, and gets up to go into the front room rather wearily. I shall go to bed soon, Poppet, she says, and leave you to do the honours. Is anything wrong, Doctor? She speaks under her voice to Vereker, looking very slightly round at Fenwick, who, after the movement that alarmed her, a rather unusually marked head-shake and pressure of his hands on his eyes, is standing looking down at the fire, on the rug with his back to her, as she speaks to Vereker. "'I fancy he's had what he calls a recurrence,' says the doctor. "'Nothing to hurt. These half-recollections will go on until the memory comes back in earnest. It may, some time.' "'Are you talking about me, doctor?' His attention may have been caught by a reflection in the glass before him. "'Yes, it was a very queer recurrence. Something about lawn-tennis?' Only it had to do with what Miss Wilson said about the police fishing Sally out of the water. He looks round for Miss Wilson, but she is at the other end of the room on a sofa, talking to Bradshaw about the Strad, 
as recorded once before. Sally testifies. Tishy said it wouldn't work, trying to drown yourself if you could swim. No more it would. But why should that make me think of lawn tennis? It did. He looks seriously distressed by it, can make nothing out. Kitten, says Sally's mother to her suddenly, I think I shall go away to bed. I'm feeling very tired. She says good-night comprehensively and departs, but she is so clearly the worse for something that her daughter follows her to see that the something is not serious. Outside she reassures Sally, who returns. Oh, no, she's only tired, really, nothing else. But what drove her out of the room was a feeling that she must be alone and silent. Could her position be borne at all? Yes, with patience and self-control, but that why should it make me think of lawn tennis, was trying. Not only the pain of still more revived association, but the fear that his memory might travel still farther into the past. It was living on the edge of a volcano. Her own memory had followed on too, taking up the thread of that old interview in the garden of twenty years ago. She had felt again the clasp of his arm, the touch of his hand, had heard his voice of passionate protest, protest against the idea that he could ever forget. And she had then pretended to make a half-joke of his earnestness. What would he do now, really, if she were to tell him she preferred his great friend Arthur Fenwick to him? That was nonsense, he said, but knew she didn't. Besides, Arthur wanted Jessie Nairn. Why, didn't they waltz all the waltzes at the party last week? Well, so did we, for that matter, all, but... And just look how they had run away together. Wasn't that them coming back? Yes, it was. And an artificial calm ensued, and more self-contained manners. But then, before the other two young lovers could rejoin them, she had time for a word more. No, dear Jerry, seriously, if I were to write out no to you in India, a great big final no, then what do you think you would do? I know what I think I should do. I should throw myself into the Hooghly or the Ganges. You silly boy, you would swim about whether you liked or no, and then Jemadars or Shastras or Sudras or something would come and pull you out, and then how ridiculous you would look. No, Rosie, because I can't swim. Isn't it funny? Then she recollected his friend's voice striking in with, What's that? Jerry Palace a swim? Of course he can't. He can wrestle or run or ride or jump and he's the best man I know with the gloves on, but swim he can't. That's flat. Also how Jerry had then told eagerly how he was nearly drowned once, and Arthur fished him up from the bottom of Abingdon Lock. The latter went on. It was after that we tattooed each other, his name on my arm, my name on his, so as not to quarrel. You know, I suppose, that men who tattoo each other's arms can't quarrel if they try. Arthur showed A. Palliser tattooed blue on his arm. Both young men were very grave and earnest about the safeguard, and then she remembered a question she asked, and how both replied with perfect gravity, of course, sure to. The question had been, was it invariable that all men quarrelled if one saved the other from drowning? She sits upstairs alone by the fire in her bedroom, and dreams again through all the past, except the nightmare of her life, that she always shudders away from. Sally will come up presently, and then she will feel ease again. Now it is a struggle against fever. 
She can hear plainly enough, for the house is but a London suburban villa, the strains from the drawing-room of what is possibly the most hackneyed violin music in the world, the Tartini, so-called Devil Sonata. Every phrase, every run, every chord an enthralling mystery still, an utterance none can explain, an inexhaustible thing no age can wither, and no custom stale. It is so soothing to her that it matters little if it makes them late, but that young man will destroy his nerves to a certainty outright. Then comes the chaos of dispersal, the broken fragments of the intelligible a watchful ear may pick out. Dr. Vereker won't have a cab, he will leave the cello till next time and walk. Mr. Bradshaw wants to get to Bayswater. Of course, that's all in our way, we being Miss Wilson and the cousin, the non-entity. We can give Mr. Bradshaw a lift as far as he goes, and then he can take the growler on. Then more good-nights are wished than the nature of things will admit of before to-morrow. Fenwick and Vereker light something to smoke, with a preposterous solicitude to use only one tan-sticker between them, and walk away umbrella-less, from which we see that it is holding up. Then comes silence, and a consciousness of a policeman musing, and suspecting doors having been left stood open. And it was then Sally went upstairs, and indicted her friend for sitting on that sofa after calling him a shop-boy, and she didn't forget it either, for after she and her mother were in bed, and presumably better, she called out to her, "'I say, Mammy!' "'What, dear?' "'Isn't that St. John's Church?' "'Isn't which St. John's Church?' "'Where Tishy goes?' "'Yes, Ladbroke Grove Road. Why?' "'Because now Mr. Bradshaw will go there. Public worship.' "'Will he, dear? Suppose we go to sleep.' But she really meant you, not we, for it was a long time before she went to sleep herself. She had plenty to think of, and wanted to be quiet, conscious of Sally in the neighbourhood. We hope our reader was not misled, as we ourselves were, when Mrs. Nightingale first saw the name on Fenwick's arm, into supposing that she accepted it as his real name. She knew better. But then, how was she to tell him his name was Palliser? Think it over. End of chapter 12